my hunts are very, very specific, like a detailed strike that is chosen through lots of information gathering. So when I do hunt, it's usually I'm going in for a kill that I have maybe specific intel on a particular buck. Um, like he showed up in this area, he's here now, I gotta go in now. Or I find out where this buck is betting, like I know where he's betting on this wind, like now's the time to go in and that's when I go in. Sometimes with a particular buck, you can pick up on, okay, you know, maybe I can't access where he is at this time of the year, but I know from history with this deer, he shows up in this area right around the same time every year for the rut or the pre-rut or whatever it is. So I'll start focusing my time on that small area on that particular deer during that time. Instead of just kind of hunting often and hoping and trying to like just luck my way into something, it's more of a patient information gathering process. And then when I have what I want or the timing is optimal, that's when I dive in. You keep following and trusting those feelings you get. Over time, they start to like adjust and be based on your experience, your your recall of what happened. Last time I went in there, I pushed too far. I bumped the buck off his bed. Well, next time I know I'm going to be a little quieter. I'm going to have my eyes up. I'm maybe not going to push in so far. I'm going to try to find that sweet spot where I can get in just tight enough where he's going to move during daylight, but just far enough where he doesn't see me, hear me, or smell me. You don't really know what your limits are. You have to like push the limits to figure out what they are. So I always tell people to, to get aggressive with it and just always ask yourself why. Constantly try to figure out and ask yourself those questions and, and that's how you learn and grow. Welcome to Days of the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast. I'm going into my 15th year of podcasting. Can't believe it's been that long. I want to thank you all for helping me keep this fresh and staying motivated to bring you new content, etc. It hasn't been easy, but uh, it helps me fuel my own passion for hunting. Speaking of helping me keep this going, please go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags and use promo code John Stallone, all one word, to save 20%. And lastly, if you could, go to Howl for Wildlife and become a member. We have partnered with Go Hunt, so now you could get your cake and eat it too. What, I, what do I mean by this? Well, you can go to Go Hunt and... If you look at their Insider full subscription, it's $149. And with the Insider, you get the Explorer as well. So we have both packages. But Explorer is is their mapping software. And it's completely dedicated just to hunting. You know, it's got the public and private land boundaries, offline maps, 3D, point tracker. And all the Western states are included. It's a, it's a great tool. So you get that plus with the Insider, you get the advanced filtering and search tools, industry leading draw odds, unit profiles, and uh, easy to read state regulation overviews and species profiles and expert insights and all this exclusive content plus monthly giveaways. So the Go Hunt Insider subscription is an awesome deal, right? But it's $149 a year. And if you've been on the fence and didn't know you, if you wanted to spend that $149, let me tell you, it's really worth it. But we're going to make it even sexier for you because if you come to Howlful Wildlife's site and you go to our membership portal and purchase a Insider or a Explorer package, you not only get a free subscription to go hunt and get all those awesome benefits that we talked about, 
but you get all the benefits of becoming a Howl for Wildlife member. And that includes our discounts with our partners, 20% or more with our partners. You are automatically included in the Howl for Wildlife giveaway, monthly giveaways for gear and hunt giveaways for the year. Plus, as a 501c3, your portion of your membership is tax deductible and you're helping out a great cause. Alpha Wildlife is out there advocating for the hunter and helping educate the non-hunting public so that uh, we can keep doing this for, for perpetuity here and so that our kids and our grandkids can enjoy it. And uh, it's a really great system, and we're super thankful that uh, Go Hunt jumped on board with us. And um, it's a great way to support Halfa Wildlife. It's a great way to get awesome tools that you will use. I use Go Hunt Insider all the time. I've been a member for a very long time, and it's how I get a lot of my tags by doing the research through there. And now you're getting extra stuff with it. So it's a great, great system. So go check it out. Become a member today. And uh, let's roll into this next episode. Thanks. Hi, welcome to Days in the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Today, uh, we're going to talk to Andy May and we are going to pick his brain a little bit. We're going to talk about whitetail hunting and some of the elk hunting he's done and kind of how the tactics all kind of play into each other. So don't you know, if you're not a whitetail hunter or you don't plan on whitetail, don't necessarily dismiss this this podcast. It might tie into exactly what you're doing, and maybe able to uh, expand your your knowledge and your bag of tricks, so to speak. I this podcast for me hit home hits home specifically because I see all the tie-ins. I see, not all of them. I mean, I was I'm not the I am not the authority on everything, but I, I see the tie-in of hunting a certain style and how we, how it could be a, implemented in, in different types of species, different types of hunts, so on and so forth. Anyway, so uh, without further ado, let's get into it. What's going on, man? Hey, John. How are you, buddy? Uh, you know, I'm... Uh, <laughs> As you can hear, I'm a little stuffed up right now. I'm having a crazy allergy attack today, so I apologize to everybody listening if I sound like uh, super nasal and might have to stop and blow my nose here every once in a while. And I'm really tired. I've gotten zero sleep in the last three days, like I think a total of nine hours. Um, so I, I, may okay. be, I may sound like a little, I may be searching for my words a little bit longer than I normally do. Um, so my, my dramatic pauses will be a lot more dramatic. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, well, no, no problem. Uh, you know, appreciate, appreciate you having me on. And uh, like we were talking before recording, um, you know, I'm, I'm mainly a whitetail guy, but uh, I've, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts um, because, uh, you know, my, my, my heart really is out West. Um, I love going out West and I've been a whitetail hunter pretty much since I started hunting. But um, now all I dream about is, is the mountains and the Western plains and the, and the prairies and stuff. So it's kind of cool to be on um, a Western style podcast. So I appreciate it. Awesome. We're happy to have you, man. Uh, why don't you give us a little rundown about yourself and uh, you know how you kind of fit into the puzzle here? So Andy May, I'm from um, Southern Michigan, and 
hunted Michigan since I started hunting, which was a little bit later in life. I didn't start hunting till 18. I actually started with archery. Um, when I was 17, I had a couple of cousins that got into bow hunting and uh, they were, uh, I, I'm, I'm an only child. So they were like, you know, the closest thing I had to brothers. And, um, I saw them get into bow hunting and they kept trying to talk me into getting a bow. So I did, I ended up getting like an old bear bow. And, um, that first year I just did archery, like leagues and little local shoots and stuff. And, um, for whatever reason, I was just pretty good at it right from the bat. In fact, I got first in my archery league. Nice. And it was just, uh, you know, it was simple local league, nothing big, but it was, you know, I obviously had some level of talent there, even though it was pretty rough, you know, on the, you know, the forum and everything, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I just loved it. I fell in love with archery first and, um, that was my first love. And then obviously, uh, you know, the shop owner and all the guys down there was like, man, you really need to bow hunt. Mm-hmm. So naturally the following year, that's what I started doing. Um, just whitetail here in Michigan and killed, you know, the first deer I shot at with a bow and, um, really started with the bow. Not that I never gun hunted, but I never really got into the gun hunting super heavy. I enjoy it. I'll go often. I'll go like opening day kind of as a tradition I've, I've killed, you know, I've killed a few bucks with a gun. Most by far and away, most of my deer have been with a bow and, and all of my big deer have been with a bow. So I just kind of got into, you know, hunting just strictly here in Michigan. And, you know, a lot of Western guys probably don't know this, but Michigan has a reputation for being a, a very difficult state to um, mm-hmm. shoot, shoot mature deer in. Um, not necessarily deer. We have, we have deer, but what we also have is a lot of hunters uh, I know we've been up close to 700,000 gun hunters um, on some seasons and, you know, around 400, 425,000 bow hunters. And that that fluctuates, but it's it's extremely pressured, extremely overcrowded. So we just don't get uh, that age class, you know, like um, a, a two-year-old 100-inch buck around here <laughs> is... It, it, it's, yeah. it's not an easy task, and that's a, a trophy to a lot of guys. But... Um, I think it was like the second or third buck I ever shot was, um, I had, I, I got some permission on a, a family farm, just a guy I went to high school with. And I ended up shooting a buck that was, I don't know, around Pope and young sized deer, you know, so a, a good deer, especially for Michigan, but like they were out of their minds, how big this thing was. And they had owned the farm for 40 years and no one had ever killed anything close to that. So I got a taste of, I guess, quote unquote, you know, a trophy deer really early on in my hunting. And from that point on, you know, obviously you get, you get a little recognition or whatever. People are like, oh man, that's so cool. That's so hard to do. You did awesome. That feels good. And I'd say, I just wanted to replicate that. Right. So I became um, pretty picky as far as like a new hunter early on and started targeting you know, mature or older deer for at least Michigan by Michigan standards. And, um, I was, you know, very successful for a lot of years in Michigan and, and, and was able to kill some really good deer and kind of climbed up that ladder of, you know, two and three year old bucks and, you know, occasional three or four year old buck. And then, you know, even some older deer than that. And got to the point where I was, you know, routinely kind of tagging out eventually in Michigan. And, um, 
I it just naturally, I was like, I wanted more opportunity. So I, I started looking into some out of state hunts and started traveling for whitetails, you know, Kentucky, Iowa, Illinois, Maryland, Indiana, mm-hmm. Tennessee, you know, all over. Um, and just every year I just kind of started hitting a new state and a new spot and slowly, but surely just started, you know, gaining a lot of experience in a lot of different types of areas and terrain. And, um, I, I kind of wish, uh, you know, the, the Western thing is relatively new to me in the last like five or six years. And, um, there, there, there's, there's one Michigan hunter. His name is Johnny Berhart. He's wrote a couple books. He's a, a phenomenal bow hunter. He's an older guy now, but he was kind of well known, um, across the hunting industry for, you know, being able to kill consistently kill mature deer in Michigan. And he was kind of a, um, a guy that a lot of Michigan hunters looked up to. So I kind of went down that same path of like, I took, made it a point or a goal to consistently target like a mature deer in Michigan. And I kind of kicked myself now because I was so dead set on that. And it was so hard to do. It took so much time and grinding and, and homework that it, it just, it really did take up a lot of time. But when I look back now, there was a lot of years there and a lot of time I had before kids where I could have been traveling out West and I could have drawn some premier elk tags, some, you know, mule deer tags. I probably could have been on a sheep or a goat hunt by now, to be honest with you. But I was so set on that and so short sighted. Um, by the time I did decide to kind of travel out West for the first time, you know, by then it was, it was kind of too late in a lot of ways for some of those premier areas. Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's hard to get into the point game uh, yeah. late in life. It is, man. It, it, and it, you know, I got in it when so you're from Arizona. Like you know, you could get into some of those. When I first started building points, you could get into some of those. You know, they're mid tier units in Arizona, mid to low tier, but still a good hunt for a, an Eastern guy, right? You know, they were four or five points. You know, so I was like, oh shoot, I'll go in four or five years. Well, now I have, you know six, seven points, but I haven't really gained any ground. <laughs> yeah. Good old you know, point so creep. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of in that situation, but, um, yeah, eventually, you know, it led to a Western hunt, an antelope and then some mule deer hunts, um, which I've just grown really fond of. And then a couple elk hunts in there. But, um, one thing that's to note about me is that I, I, uh, you know, I do have a family. I work two jobs and one of my job is at, uh, I'm in a school system and I work with students with, that have like special needs. Okay. So I'm on a teacher's schedule, um, which means it's not great for hunting. Um, no. yeah, I, I get out of work, you know, three, three thirty. So for me to get out locally for an evening, yeah, I can do that, you know, here in Michigan, but as far as traveling, we don't get vacation time. So I get two personal days a year. So my hunting is limited to weekends hmm. and, adding one of those one or two of those personal days and you know i've been there over 20 years so you know i don't feel that guilty about you know in the fall calling in sick a day here or there and stretching <laughs> it out to, to three or four days like I, I feel like i've earned it you know so essentially you know i'm i'm, I'm really limited on time and what uh how much time i can spend out there so it, it does make those western hunts pretty challenging so i don't i don't necessarily set my sights on um you know giant animals but i i as far as mule deer i've been really fortunate i've killed five mule deer and they've all been in that kind of 
160 to 180 range. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, a couple of Pope and Young size antelope and, um, you know, the elk hunting from what my experience now, when you, when you have two to four days, yeah, an antelope hunt, you could probably get in and you, maybe you'll get an opportunity probably cause you, you do see them. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, that's the best thing about antelope is yeah, you get, you know, five to six, at least at bats a day, right. You know, that's right. And yep. It's just a numbers game. Eventually, it'll work in your in your favor. So yeah, it's to, it's totally doable in a few days. Yeah, and then as far as mule deer, you know, it's like if you can if you can get into an area that has a decent population, you're you know, and your maybe your goal or your standards aren't you know super high, you probably could get some opportunity there too. I've just been real fortunate to be able to find some good enough animals for me, you know, I mean, they might not be for some guys, but they certainly are for me. I've been really happy with that. But the elk, the elk has been a tough one. Um, Mm -hmm. the very first time I went, I went OTC Colorado and, uh, I actually got a crack at a giant OTC bowl, probably in that somewhere in that three thirty range. And, um, you know, hit them in the shoulder, you know, same, (laughs) same story here from a lot of guys, probably the, Mm first few times out but uh, man it was just such a heartbreaker but what i've just found is that it elk hunting is a whole different deal um it you know you to do that in three four days even five days it's so it's so hard mm-hmm. so um i've just kind of come to the conclusion with with elk i'm gonna have to think of, if i do do it elk hunt, it's gonna i have to think of it in terms of like a span of two years is like one trip so if i'm gonna hunt three days or four days. Okay. You know, and then the following year, three days or four days. And well, that's my week, you know, I'm just spreading it out over years and I can't expect to, you know, really be successful consistently at all, you know, on those types of short hunts. Cause it's, it's just a, a really big undertaking, but man, I sure do love it. Yeah, um, it's, so it's yeah, different. that's pretty much, uh, that's pretty much my story in a nutshell, I guess. Awesome. Well, um, I mean, so a lot of what I wanted to talk about with you is is the fact that you have such a limited amount of time and you've been able to be so successful. It kind of I have I have more time than you for sure, but I know like when I go out of state, I always hear these guys talking about, you know, oh yeah, I put, you know, a week of scouting in or a couple weeks of scouting in, I'm running cameras and this and that. And I very rarely have that time. Now I spend a lot of days in the field, but each hunt is typically only five days. Maybe sometimes I'll go for, for seven days. Mm-hmm. So my actual hunting time for those animals and spending time for the animal is is pretty minimal. So I'd love to see what it is that you're doing and how it kind of correlates to what I do and see if there's any you know lines we could draw or similarities, whatever. So why don't you run us through... Well, let's talk about a whitetail hunt and then, and then you can kind of like bring us through one of your mule deer hunts and what you did and how you looked at it and, and mm-hmm. how you handled it. Like, you know, like what was your preparation to, for it and, and how, what you did, you think maybe, uh, correlated to your success? Sure. Okay. So yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't always. I have a reputation. A lot of guys like to say that I'm efficient, you know, I'm real efficient with my hunts. And I guess, I guess I've, I've kind of become more efficient over time. I mean, I definitely have, 
but it wasn't always that way. I mean, early on, you know, I, I think I killed most of my bucks just by being so persistent that just, they just, you know, I was just happened to be in the woods when they made a dumb mistake, you know, and it wasn't necessarily so much skill involved. Um, it was just a lot of time put in, um, which, you know, a lot of hunts, hunts come down to that. It's just persistence and, and waiting for that right opportunity. But what, at least in Michigan here, um, what I've kind of evolved into is more of, um, my hunts are very, very specific, like a detailed strike that is chosen through lots of information gathering. So, um, when I, when I do hunt, it's usually I'm going in for a kill that I have maybe specific Intel on a particular buck. Um, like he showed up in this area, he's here now, I got to go in now, or I find out where this buck is bedding. Like I know where he's bedding on this wind, like now's the time to go in. And that's when I go in, or it could be a particular buck, you know, whitetails, they often shift throughout the year into different areas. So they might spend early season here where there's a really great food source, like an alfalfa field or a bean field or, or wherever. And then, you know, the velvet comes off and they kind of break off similar to mule deer, Mm -hmm. you know, and then they go to, they kind of transition to where their fall range is going to be maybe that mid September, October timeframe. And then they're kind of in this area and they're, they might even still be in somewhat of a bachelor group, but they're a little more social, more of a bed to feed. And then often there's another shift right around that pre-rut time and they'll shift to where they're going to rut to and where they're going to breed and spend the next few weeks. Sometimes they stay right where they were. Sometimes bucks completely move to a new area that's miles away. And then they often come back late season back to where they spent their early fall range back where they're, you know, is a reliable food source. So sometimes with a particular buck, you can pick up on, okay, you know, maybe I can't access where he is at this time of the year, but I know from history with this deer, he shows up in this area right around the same time every year for the rut or the pre-rut or whatever it is. So I'll start focusing my time on that small area on that particular deer during that time, instead of just kind of hunting often and hoping and trying to like, just luck my way into something. It's more of a patient information gathering process and then when I have what I want or the timing is optimal, that's when I dive in. So let's say like I don't have a particular buck that I'm going after. Maybe maybe there's it's just one of those years in Michigan where, man, there's just no big buck around. There's no, you know, big mature deer that I've had my sights set on for a year or two. So um, that's that often happens here. So what I'll what I've kind of fall back to is like, okay, what areas have been good? at specific times of the year. I'm, I'm going to lower my standards. I'm still going to look for a good buck, but may, I just don't have that next level buck that I, that I have around this year to go after. So I'm going to think like, okay, um, you know, I've hunted a lot. I've hunted for, you know, t- t- over 25 years. I have a ton of experience. You know, where are some of these spots that are routinely good? They routinely hold good deer early on. And although those are the spots I'm going to really start checking out and dissecting early in the season or, or prior to the, the opener. So I'm spending a lot of time there because history, you know, has shown that this, this is one of those areas. Um, and then as we transition into the season, you know, we get more into like October. So then I'm starting to look at, okay, where are some of these areas that were in the past, some of these good bucks kind of transition into, or where are the acorns at this year? 
you know, where are they falling? Where's a good crop of acorns? Where's a good food source? And then if, you know, if I'm still kind of going through the season without much success, you know, then we're getting into that pre-rut rut. Okay. You know, this river bottom every year is it's full of does every year. There's never a good buck in there early, but come rut. I mean, there's, there's bucks, they show up. I don't know where they come from, but they're in there. So now I'm going to spend my time hunting in, in an area like that. So it, it has taken me a lot of time to kind of figure this out and kind of trust it. But it's very interesting how reliable that can be. You know, I can kind of fall back on that, that timing of things. If, if all that stuff, like <laughs> I think about two years ago, you know, all that stuff was just, I was coming up empty handed. So I was just, I was just looking for, I, I was looking for a decent buck to hunt in Michigan. It was so frustrating. It was just one of those years. Mm-hmm. So I just started covering ground and looking for, for good, fresh, you know, big buck sign. I mean, literally good old fashioned woodsmanship. Um, yeah, I was putting cameras out and I was, you know, kind of cycling through those and letting those do some work for me too. But I covered so much ground, so much new ground, just looking for something that told me, you know, there's a good mature deer in here. He's in here now. He's close. So I could at least start the process of trying to break this down. So there's, there's not really a, a one fit answer for your question, but it's, it's, it's a process of gathering information. Mm-hmm. And then when I have enough of it that I feel like, okay, this, this information or this timing or this uh, situation deserves a hunt or some time in this area, that's when I dive in. And I've been able to be, I've been able to have more success in much less time by, by doing that because I'm just so much more efficient. My, my hunts are much more productive, mm-hmm. higher chance of success because I'm putting myself in a really good spot. So does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so now, I guess you, what you, I want to see is like, how does that translate to you going on an out of state hunt? That makes yeah. perfect sense to me at home because yep even though you don't have a whole lot of time, you still, whatever little pieces of time that you do have, you can jump in the woods and, and go look for that sign or go find yeah. those areas that, that look appealing to you. Yep. And so it's sort of the same answer and sort of different. I feel like out of state, like obviously I don't have quite the experience out of state in these areas. I don't know them quite as intimately, but you know, when I started off, I was hunting like, you know, Illinois and Iowa and Indiana and I was just kind of, or Ohio, kind of sticking to those states. And I was started to learn these areas really, really well. And I did start to pick up on some of those same patterns. But then what I was, you know, what I was doing is I was traveling, you know, it started out as an out-of-state rut hunt. So, I mean, what are you going to do if you're going to go on an out-of-state rut hunt? You're probably going to go to a hunt that is known for having good deer. Right you know, good, uh, a good age class, a good number of, you know, good bucks. So you, you look at those Iowa's and those Illinois and those Indiana's and Ohio's. Well, I would go there during the rut and, you know, sure enough, you know, there's does, deer are moving. Like I could get into the action. I mean, it, it seemed head and shoulders miles better than what I ever experienced in Michigan. Oh yeah. I would, I would see, I would go to Iowa and I would see, or Illinois, for that matter. And I would see more big deer in three days of hunting than I would see in 10 seasons of Michigan. 
And, and that's not an exaggeration. So for me, I'm coming from a state that I feel is one of the most challenging, not because the terrain's hard to hunt, not because of that, but because of the pressure, the way the deer act and just the lack of mature deer. So I, I feel like I've kind of grown up in an area where you need to be perfect. You need to put in your time. You need to do everything right. You need to make that shot when you get that opportunity. You have to do everything to the finest of details. It's kind of almost like a tra- you're, you're training in this one of the most challenging environments. And then you're, then you're going and you're traveling to an area where there's less people, there's more deer, or there's more big bucks. They move more. They're more susceptible to calls, to rattling, like all this stuff. It's like, wow, this is really different. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it was, it was much different and, and easier for me to get an arrow into a nice deer. So that's not to say, you know, the big 190 that's in there is an easier deer, you know, an easier deer to kill. I'm not saying that, but I wasn't always going looking for that. I was looking for a good, hoping young to 150 class deer. I was, I was always happy with that size because I was always on a short hunt. So I would travel to, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois during the rut and would consistently have success. I mean, I would sit dark to dark, you know, mm-hmm. all, always. I killed so many nice deer midday. And it was just that mindset of coming from Michigan where I, I had to put it all on the line, uh, you know, every hunt, all season to just get that one crack. And then I was thrusted into a situation where, hey, this is some pretty good hunting and there's some great deer around. It was it was a, a, an easier thing for me, say, much different than a guy, say, that grew up hunting in Illinois. Uh-huh. And then he comes to Michigan and, and tries to get it done on, you know, some pressured private or public land, yeah. whole different thing, you know, uh-huh. not that that guy couldn't do it, but it's, it's a whole different thing. You know, it is, it, it would take a whole different level of skills and mindset. So yeah. then that transition into like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm shooting these deer, I'm tagging out in Michigan, I'm killing a deer or two during the rut out of state, like, what other opportunities are there for me? So then I started looking into early seasons, you know, then you start thinking of like, okay, where can I hunt early before Michigan starts? Michigan starts October 1st. I want to hit that hard. I want to try to get a buck down early. What, what opens before October 1st? So then you start looking at places like Kentucky or Wyoming or, you know, at these September 1st, mid September openers. So just knowing what I knew about whitetails, you know, from glassing them in the summer and stuff, it's like, you know, summer velvet, like they're hitting beans, they're hitting alfalfa, they're out in the open, they're moving much more. So that's where I traveled to. I traveled to areas that were conducive to that, that had big lush crop fields that had more open ground. You know, I kind of avoided like big blocks of timber or big, big woods, I should say, for early season, because I wanted to be able to use my glass and use my eyes. And I think, again, that Michigan mindset of just going all in and being so thorough with your scouting and put in that effort. Like it was just another easy transition for me to go to Kentucky and, you know, go down there two days before the season opener and glass my head off, you know, morning and evening. And sure enough, you know, it it's Kentucky. There's some good deer there. I would glass up, I would turn up a good buck. You know, sometimes it was a, a one thirty, and, and sometimes it was a, you know, something around one fifty. you know what I mean? Like good whitetails. And I started having luck there and I killed a few there and, you know, then started branching out into other States. And then 
the same thing applied to late season. It was like, okay, I was starting to have this consistent set success in Michigan during the rut out of state early season in a different state. And it's like, okay, what, what could I fit in late season? Like that's hard. That's my weakness. You know, I've, I've never been a strong late season hunter because I never had a good food source to focus on, mm-hmm. um, you know, around Michigan, all the foods out, acorns are dried up, you know, everything's pushed to private land. And it just was like, okay, you know, I'd really like to try to fit in another trip and, and try to capitalize on that. So, so I started going to states that just had really high deer density, good buck deer density. And, um, you know, started going like to Maryland, certain parts of Maryland and, um, certain parts of Ohio and, uh, you know, started trying to throw another hunt in there. And that has been the most challenging one by far, but then I started shooting some nice deer on some of those hunts too. So, um, it really came down to out of state, you know, being efficient was like, really putting my time in, in good areas when the time was optimal for the tactic I was wanting to use. So like early season, obviously I'm not going to go to upstate New York, you know, early season and try to, you know, and try to kill a a good whitetail in two or three days. Like it's just not going to happen. And I'm not going to claim that I could go do that because I know I, I know I couldn't, I mean, anyone could get lucky, but if you put, if you put a guy in an area that's conducive to glassing where there's some good deer around and yeah, maybe he's not after that Boone and Crockett type animal. He's after a good Pope and young or bigger size animal. And that's usually kind of where I put myself. I mean, I try to shoot, you know, I, I'm more of like, I look for a mature deer first, but like that 140 type area or bigger is like kind of what I look for, but I'm not above shooting a, a, a Pope and young size animal. I, those I'm happy to do that. They make me happy. They get me excited still. And on these short-term hunts, like sometimes, you know, that's, that might be as good as it gets. And if I come home empty-handed, no big deal, but you know, it's, you're, you're adjusting your standards by how much time you have, where you're hunting, that kind of thing. So I guess that's how I've been more efficient. I think too, I describe it as I'm a, I'm a very like feel type hunter. Like I, I, I have very strong instincts that kick in, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't always that way. I always had feelings and like gut feelings and and instincts, but they weren't always right. And what I've, what I've done from the beginning is I, I always hunted my own way. Like always, if I wanted to move over there, you know, it was thick cover and thick bedding and all the magazine articles will say, you stay out of the sanctuary and you hunt here and you hunt these funnels. Well, I just did it and I would make all these mistakes, right? Uh I would screw up. I'd make all these mistakes, but I would always follow my gut. And then my theory is like over time, you know, you, you keep following and trusting those feelings you get over time, they start to like adjust and be based on your experience, your, your recall of what happened. Last time I went in there, I pushed too far. I bumped the buck off his bed. Well, next time I know I'm going to be a little quieter. I'm going to have my eyes up. I'm maybe not going to push in so far. I'm going to try to find that sweet spot where I can get in just tight enough where he's going to move during daylight, but just far enough where he doesn't see me, hear me or smell me. Right. And it's it's like you're adjusting these instincts over time with all these experiences that I've had in Michigan and Iowa and Illinois and all these different states. It's like pretty soon they start to be right a lot of the time. So I, I do trust my gut feeling. I go with what I feel is right in that situation, not what some magazine article or what some guy on a podcast told me. It's like I trust 
my gut. And, and I think it's adjusted over time where it just tends to be right more often than, than not. Um, I certainly fail. I certainly make a ton of mistakes, but, um, I think a lot of it has to do with that. It's just, I'm sure you talk to a lot of great Western hunters that are just good and they've developed these, the skill set. And sometimes it's hard to explain like how they get it done because it's not a textbook thing. I like do this, yeah, yeah. then do this, then do this. And you're going to have, uh, you know, 170 inch mule deer killed. No, it's this. And then there's all these little tiny decisions that you have to make during this hunt. Should I do this? Should I do this? Should I wait till the sun gets a little higher? What's the wind doing? You know, do I go in aggressive now or, or, or should I kind of wait until the sun gets higher and he's a little lazier? Like all these little different decisions mm-hmm. and these instinctual feelings you get, you kind of learn to follow them over time. I, I think and, what it and is, that's what leads to success. I think what it is, is really having an awareness and paying attention to what it is that you're doing, mm-hmm. what it, what the conditions are, what the terrain looks like, and being able to file that in your mental Rolodex, right? So that you yeah. can recall on that experience and use it to your advantage the next time. Every time we do right. something in our, you know, and some people are way better at it than, than others. Every time you do something, that memory is imprinted in your you know, in your mind in a way that it's in a place that you can recall on it. And then you don't know that you're doing this necessarily, but right. the next time you're faced with a situation, your mind goes through a bunch of different, you know, memories really quick, so to speak, and and says, okay, which one, which one is this memory? Which memory does this situation that I'm in match the most? Okay, what did I do in that memory? And what do I need to do now? Like, it, yeah. it, I mean, it sounds pretty like a, but that's kind of what happens, right? That's so, right. Yeah. I, I don't know. You're exactly right. I don't know that there really is a way that you can necessarily train yourself, you know, for the recall process, but you can certainly really start paying attention so that it's more obvious to yourself what it is that's happening and what it is that you're doing um, Mm -hmm. within the situation, you know, and that way you'll have an easier time making those little decisions that you were talking about when the time comes. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Hey guys, I wanted to take a moment to discuss some really important stuff with you. Take a minute and think hard about what hunting and fishing and the outdoors means to you. Now, I want you to imagine if all of that went away. It's a pretty grim picture, right? Now that I have your attention, there's a long time narrative out there that has been promoted by the anti-hunting and fishing groups to paint sportsmen and women as villains. We need to stop this narrative. We need to bring the truth to light. So how do we do that? We educate ourselves on the North American model of conservation and the common myths that are pushed out by the animal activists. We take this knowledge and we start communicating with our non-hunting friends, coworkers, and just educate them on the truth. But I really want you to become an expert in your own right, because the last thing we want to do 
is to put out false information or to offend somebody. So it's really important to just fill yourself with knowledge and become, unfortunately, become an activist. You have to become an activist. And I know that's a dirty word, but now more than ever, it's important for us to do that. We need to start planting our own seeds. That way, we develop more people, we turn more people into sympathizers. Because right now, we're faced with these issues where if a anti-hunting bill reaches the ballot, now Halfa Wildlife has been very successful at eliminating that, getting there, but we can't rely on that. Unfortunately, if it gets to the ballot, the anti-hunting, the animal activist groups, animal rights groups, they are in position to launch campaigns to the non-hunting public, and they will pump propaganda into urban areas where people don't necessarily know anything about hunting and fill their minds with all kinds of lies and paint pictures of cute and cuddly bears and lions and wolves and paint this terrible picture of you, the hunter, the sportsman, who is the whole reason why these animals are on the landscape. So it is important for us to start in a grassroots effort, start changing the minds and educating the non-hunting public on the truth. That way, if something like this does go to the ballot box, you have possibly created a sympathetic voter for the sportsman. Keep that in mind. Think about it. Thank you very much. Let's get back to the show. You know, it, it takes experience and it takes those, those hardships and all those thousands and thousands of mistakes before you really start seeing it, but that's what it is. It's, it's experience and be able to recall from it and, and being able to adjust. And, you know, I get a lot of messages because a lot of guys are in the same boat as me, you know, they're working a job or two jobs. They have a family with young kids and they can't, right. like you said, they can't go out there for two weeks and they have three or four days or they're a weekend warrior. And they're like, I want to, you know, how, how can you tell me how you do this? Because I'm in the same situation and I want to do this. But what I, what I tell them is it's like, it's not a certain thing. And before I had family and kids, I spent, you know, 15 years of just being completely obsessed with this stuff. And it's all I did. It ruined relationships. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I didn't spend, I didn't spend as much time with my friends. I didn't get in golf leagues like everybody. I didn't play softball. I would work. And then when I got out of work, I would hit the woods and I would be in the woods till dark. And that was year round because even out of season, I was just scouting. I was completely eaten up with it. I put in more time there than, you know, anyone I knew. And, um, then I was literally hunting, you know, during that time, almost every day of the season, you know, I really was, I was really just putting in that time and I was hunting in an area that was challenging and it challenged me and it was difficult. And to find success there, I I had to improve or I would, I would do exactly what everybody else does here in Michigan, you know, and that's shoot little bucks. Right. And it, it just, I had to evolve, but that, that time 
that I put in where I devoted everything to that was a, was a big, huge part. And for a guy, let's say he's 35 and he's got a wife and kids and he's like, I want to, I want to be able to shoot consistently go on these, these hunts for two to three or four days and, and bring one home every time. Well, man, that's, that's a, a very tall order. That's a tall order for any hunter, including me, including you, including the best hunter out there. But for a guy that doesn't have that experience to pull from, doesn't have the confidence, doesn't have, hasn't made all the mistakes. It's like, you know, it it just can't be done. So what I tell people is like, don't try to do what I do. Try to have a process and think long-term, you know, devote some time, like devote some time to this. Like, you know, of course, prioritize your family, but this, if this is your passion, you'll make time for it. If your wife loves you, Hopefully, you know, she's going to let you spend some time, you know, trying to, to, to develop this and think of it as like a marathon. Like you're, you're, you're trying to progress over a long period of time. Like if I showed people the bucks that I killed the first 10 years I hunted, like, I mean, although they're decent, you know, they're good Michigan bucks. I mean, there's a lot of like hundred inch bucks, 115, 120, you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. I climbed up that ladder. I wasn't shooting 160 inch deer right off the bat. It was a, it was a progression. And when I think back of like how I used to hunt and and some of the stuff I did, I was like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, what a goofball, but you know, it's like, yeah, but that's how you learn, right? That's, that's how you learn. You you got those mistakes. Those mistakes are, are a prerequisite and you can't, there's no way to really sidestep them and shoot great deer i don't think unless unless you know unless you're gonna just be one of those guys that wants to go outfitted or or you know buys a sweet chunk of ground and you learn how to hunt that piece then you can maybe take a little bit of a shortcut and there's nothing against that i'm not trying to well crack on here's the all, thing but. about that so let me uh, one thing i i feel about the going outfitted if you want to shorten your learning curve I don't know if so much, it, it might not be as obvious when you're going on a guided whitetail hunt because they probably just take you out to, you know, I, I, sh- I shouldn't say probably, I know I've been on a, a couple guided yeah. whitetail hunts. They just take you out to a stand and they, you know, put you in the stands. You don't necessarily see everything. Right. Like you don't see what went into why we chose that spot, right? But when you're going on a guided hunt, let's say out west, and you're doing spot and stalk, you can learn a lot. And I don't mean take the guy's freaking hunting spot because that shit happens all the time and that's that's bullshit. Yeah. But right. You know, figuring out, you know, asking, you know, why would you choose a spot like this? Why this? Why that? You got you got an experienced person that you can absorb their knowledge, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. And you're in a situation where they're telling you when you're about to make something, make a wrong decision, they're helping you make the right decision or at least a better decision, right? Um, yep. Then go ahead, do that. There's no shame in it. I know people get shamed for it all the time. Um, yep. I'm an outfitter, I'm an accomplished bow hunter, and people have shamed me for going on a guided hunt. So, yeah. like, I don't get it. Well, I, I, I'm yeah. glad you, I'm glad you, said that because you're absolutely right it's, it's a whole different thing you know um you know i've had friends that go on whitetail hunts and they'll, they'll go and it's like you, you don't get to do any of the scouting they don't really tell you why it's there it's just you're like you said they put you in a spot and you know day one my buddy 
you know, a buddy of mine <laughs> shoots like a 165 inch buck. Right. <laughs> and it's totally fine. Like he, enjoy, he had a great time. I'm happy for him, but like doing something out West, say like a, a Nevada mule deer hunt, Yeah, you know, learning from an experienced outfitter, that would be invaluable. Like that, that would shorten your learning curve so much in not only like how much effort to get back into where you need to get, but like what you're looking for out there, the patience behind the glass. Right. You know what I mean? The persistence and the just um, being in shape, like all this, this stuff, the gear, the proper gear in case weather turns bad, like all this stuff, like you could get a, a, a crash course and learning. Yep. And then all of a sudden that next year is like, you know what? I, I think I could do this on my own. Right. You know, just don't I could do do, it probably this do this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I'm glad you made that. Um, I'm glad you said that because there is a, a big difference between the whitetail and the Western side of things. Well, I mean, a huge difference. Well, here's the know? thing about the whitetail. So, and this is where, where my takeaways, first off, you know, when you get back in the evening, sit there and talk to the guy, talk to the guides, pick their brain. When you're sitting nowadays, we got Onyx maps, we got, you know, Google Earth, we got all these, you know, cool things, like go hunt and all these great, you know, applications and technology available to us. You're sitting in a tree stand, you got cell phone service, pull up the map. Look mm-hmm. how everything is in relationship to the stand where you're at. Right? Okay, you yep. got crops, you got crop here, you got creek bottom here, you we're on a you know, on a bench where, you know, the, the ridge intersecting ridge line in a saddle the, it's on a, you know, field edge, what, whatever. And you look at these things and you're like, okay, how can I replicate this in where I normally hunt? How do I look for these, these pieces of the puzzle that made this stand that I'm sitting in right now, a place that an outfitter, a professional hunter would put his stand to give mm-hmm. his client the best opportunity. What can I do to make what, why, how, when, all that stuff? Yep. And how can I replicate that somewhere else? Exactly. Yeah. So, yep. And it, it, it goes back to what you were saying too before, just, you know, being aware and constantly learning and asking yourself why, you know what I mean? I think, I think if people can just get that mindset through every hunting experience, that, that's what's going to help you grow the most instead of just kind of going and seeing things at face value. You really got to like look into things deeper and, and just when you observe something, you see something, you ask yourself why, mm-hmm. you know, and don't be afraid to like, you know, a lot of guys I think too, are just like, you know, they learn some of this stuff and then they're, they go out and they're just so afraid to make a mistake. You know, I think, I think being on that, that more aggressive side of things, especially early on, mm-hmm. you know, it, I think it helps you because you, you're pushing the limits, right. And you're going to blow a lot of things, a lot of stocks on mule deer, a lot of stocks on antelope, but, or, or blow a lot of whitetails out of their bedding area. Cause you're, you're pushing, you're being a little aggressive, but I, I always tell young hunters, like start out like that because you're pushing your limits. It tells you what you can and get, a, you can't get away with. Right. As opposed to sitting back, sitting on the field edge and not observing anything, you're, you're thrusting yourself into the game. You're getting these at bats and these experiences to learn from like on a mule deer side. It's like when I, when I first started mule deer hunting, like I immediately (laughs) 
not not immediately, but like very quickly uh, would pretty much stalk every animal I saw. You know what I mean? And whether they were in a good spot or a bad spot, like I didn't know what was a good spot and a bad spot. I didn't know what I could get away with yet. I just know I didn't want them to see me. I didn't want them to hear me. I didn't want right. them to smell me. And I didn't know what I could get away with. So I was just like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit on this deer for three days and wait for him to get in the perfect spot. No, I'm going to, I'm going to push it now because I don't know if I'm going to get another opportunity. That's, that's my, I, that's my mindset. I've always had that mindset. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I, I think I can do this, you know, and, and you know, what? I blow the stock and it's like, okay, well, you know, what did I mess up on here? What did I do? What, if I would have done this, if I would have just waited, you know, if I would have let the sun get a little higher and him a little sleeper, sleepier, had the sun in his eyes, or if I came up this route, stayed in the shadows a little more, if I waited, you know, it looked like the wind was going to pick up at one o'clock. Maybe I waited till the wind picked up to 15 to 20 and he wouldn't have heard me, you know, scratching through this brush, trying to get close. Like all these little things, you start asking yourself why, but if I didn't put myself in that situation and be aggressive, you don't really you don't really know what your limits are. You have to like push the limits to figure out what they are. So I always tell people to, to get aggressive with it and just always ask yourself why constantly try to figure out and ask yourself those questions. And, and that's how you learn and grow. I, I, I couldn't agree more, man. It's like, we, uh, we're, uh, twinsies when it comes to yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't, I've never been that guy. Be like, well, you know, I mean, unless he's in a really just obviously piss poor spot. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm going, you know, yeah. I don't know yeah. if I'm going to get another opportunity. I don't know that I'm going to turn this book back up tomorrow or, you know, that's right. It, within it, it's the funny. days that I have to hunt. It's funny. It's like, I have this, this confidence about myself, you know, with hunting, with bow hunting and not, not saying it's, it's right or wrong or that I deserve to even have this confidence, but I do. And I, I, sometimes I'll see deer in a spot and I know it's not perfect, but I think it's doable or it might be like a 10% chance. And, and I like, I'll say to myself, I was like, if anyone can do this, you can do this. And I don't mean that in a cocky way. No, you, you are, gotta be there, that way, man. There are way better hunters out there than me, especially when it comes to mule deer. But I, I, I believe that in myself and I'm like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure this deer doesn't if see me and that I get within bow range. If you can't see yourself doing it, then you're probably not going to be able to do it. Yeah. Right. Every yep. time I release an arrow, I'm thinking that arrow is hitting where I'm, what I want it to hit. Without a doubt. Every time I shoot a bullet, every time, you know, in my head, and sometimes it's bit me in the ass because I've forced shots that I probably shouldn't have taken. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I really, been struggling to, you know, not really struggling, I shouldn't say, but I've really been trying to wrangle myself back with this idea that John is John Stallone's the greatest archer in the whole world, um, yep. you know, mentality. Yeah. I don't really believe that. But when I'm taking the shot, I believe that. That's right. I, I have to, I have to feel and you know, I have to feel that I never want to be surprised. Oh, I actually hit him, you know, like <laughs> Exactly. You know, I, I it has yeah. to be your mind. I'm making the shot, right? And and yep. if you don't have that, if you don't feel like that is gonna is gonna happen, then then don't shoot because you're already you already halfway failed yourself. 
And that's right. The yeah. chances the chances of that working out for you are going to be pretty slim. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you you know we asked about you know efficiency and maybe how that's transitioned over to the yes I was just going to ask you that yeah the western stuff too um, you know but it's it's really that same it's really that same mindset you know I I started off with an antelope hunt um, which is pretty common for an easterner to kind of start there mm-hmm. and you know I I had already had a lot of experience of hunting whitetails on the ground I a lot of times I find myself on the ground and kind of sneaking around I've always had that more mobile type of style. I'm, I'm able to sit in a tree stand or a tree saddle, literally dark to dark. I can do it. I've done it. I've killed deer doing that. But like, I do enjoy getting on the ground and getting at eye level and sneaking around and looking for fresh shine and maybe trying to get an eyes on animals. So I, I've, I had some experience and a lot of confidence on that, on the whitetail side. And they're, they're extremely hard to sneak yeah, up on. Really hard. Um, mm-hmm. Very cagey. Yeah. Very cagey, especially, uh, you know, a mature deer. So when I did the antelope thing, I mean, obviously, you know, we went to Wyoming. I mean, it's the, the king of antelope country and right. there, they were everywhere. I mean, I, we saw that there was no shortage of opportunities. Um, but what I knew going out West and, and I'm like you, I take my, my archery very, very seriously. Like I said before, archery was my first love and I practice year round. I shoot year round, um, pretty much daily, you know, at least four or five days a week. And, um, I, I am one of those guys that, you know, really stretches it out and practices those long range, not looking for those long shots, but to increase my confidence, to really fine tune my setup, to really build a nice forgiving setup that I'm confident in. And I knew, you know, for me to be successful on these Western hunts, like I already knew, I talked to enough guys where it's like, you know, if you, if you get a 50, 60 yard shot at the antelope, that's, that's pretty good. Oh, you know, that's a close that's shot a slam dunk. spot and stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I knew it's like, okay, you know, I, these, these 50, 60, 70 yard shots, they have to be no brainer, like automatic, super confident. And so that's what I trained for. I mean, I shot like a lot of Western guys. I mean, I'm, you know, hundred yards, 110 yards, just routinely, like 80 yards was like my warm up, And right. you just, you, you start to build confidence. I'm not the world's greatest archer, but I'm certainly capable. And, and you, you really, at those distances, you know, the slightest mistake in, in grip pressure in your release and your nose on the string, anything equates to a big miss down range. So you do again, once again, have to be perfect. But if you could do that for months and months and months and make all these great shots, mm-hmm. you, you do, you build that confidence. And that's what I went into that antelope, antelope hunt with the utmost confidence in my shooting. And, um, you know, sure enough, it was, I think I, I failed on my first two stalks, you know, thought I could get away with something that I, that I didn't. And then the, the, it was like day two, I sat in a blind on a water hole and had a buck come in, but he was a little small and I was decided to, to let him go. Well, I, I don't know. I made it like two hours in that dang thing. And I was like, I'm, I'm not sitting <laughs> this. You know, it, it, and I would, you know, later on in the hunt, I would, I, I, I would do it. I did like the mental part of it. It was, it was pretty freaking hot and grueling. It was early season, August. And it was like, yeah, it's I like the fact that it was a suffer fest. Cause I do like that kind of stuff. But I was like, I didn't come here to sit in the blind. I'll do it the last two days if I need to. Right. 
So I got out and sure enough, I get out and, um, I see a nice antelope like coming across the, the sage and I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's one right there. I snuck into position, kind of belly crawled, got within, you know, effective shooting range. And it, it was, man, it was a poke to this day is my longest kill. And, and dude, I put it right through both lungs and it felt great. But like part of that efficiency out West is like, I knew like I, I need to be able to extend my range past 40 and 60. And I don't want to be that guy that's out there taking 120 yard cracks no. at every animal. No, just but you're practicing at 120 so you can make an 80 yard shot, right? Like, that's right. That's right. That's right. And I, and I, and I put a lot of time and effort in that. Just like, I might get one shot at a good uh, antelope or I might get one good shot at a big mule deer on these hunts, on these short hunts. Like I have to make the shot. I can't, that can't be the question mark in this whole story. That has to be the part that's, that's guaranteed. And and so I put a lot, a lot of stress on that and really built up my confidence on that. So a lot of these hunts, you know, it is like, it's like, I'm looking for that one opportunity and I 100% expect my arrow to hit right behind my pin. Does it always? No. But just like you said earlier, you have that confidence when you draw back and you have that bow back mm-hmm. and you're settling, settling that pin. Like I am, hundred I, I can't even explain 130 percent confident that that arrow is going to hit right behind the pin and if it doesn't i'm shocked you know because i've made the shot so many times i've practiced it i've visualized it i've gone through my head i've made such an emphasis on that part of the hunt i need to make that that shot count yep. on the hunt because i i'm i got i got three days i got four days i'm not going to get five stalks on mule deer. I'm just not, you know? So I think that's how I've been able to be, you know, efficient on, on some of the out of state hunts. But, but again, it's like, I'm not going, you know, I'm not going to, for instance, I drew a, uh, a Nevada tag um, a couple years ago. It was, it wasn't a, you know, a premier tag, but it was a tag. I was, it was, yeah, it was cool. And uh, because of the start date, of August 10th, I didn't have to take work off. I was actually off work. So it was the oh, only hunt I've ever been on where I've been able to spend over a week. So we did a, um, did a nine day backcountry hunt. And <laughs> ironically, it was the, the hunt that I've had the longest time to commit to. And I came home empty handed. <laughs> so like that happens. a lot of times, yeah, a lot of times, you know, I go to these, these areas that do have like good numbers of animals. you know, like, I want opportunity. I want a good mix of opportunity and, and trophy quality, but like I don't not necessarily trying to get into like these really high end trophy units. Not that I could anyway, but a lot of, sometimes those have lower deer densities, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. And I, and I just don't have that week to 12 days to put in but that that nevada hunt was really cool because i did i mean i think the first five days of the hunt like we didn't even see an antler deer we saw a couple does and fawns and it was just like holy crap like this is a whole different deal and you know i did a ton of research talked to a lot of guys and i purposely avoided the most popular trailheads thinking i was thinking I was going to outsmart everybody 
<laughs> well, come to find out, there's a reason those are the most popular trailheads. It's because there's a ton of deer up there. Right, right. And, um, you know, I talked to my buddy who, who had went on one of those, and they were getting two or three stalks a day. And they weren't seeing great deer. They weren't seeing, like, you know, I don't, I don't know if they saw any over 160. Right. But they were seeing a lot of that 140, 150, 160 type deer, and they were getting cracks at them. Right. Well, I avoided those areas. And in fact, I, I ran into very few hunters in the areas I was, but like around day six, I got into this basin and glassed up um, a group of four bucks. And immediately I saw this one and the frame on it. I was like, oh my God, like it, you know, you think like a mule deer on a, on a magazine, that's like that 30 inch wide buck. Like this was it. And I'm glassing him and he's in a terrible spot. So it is one of those ones where it's like, okay, I, I, he needs to get somewhere, at least a decent location where I can get to him. Well, the way this is a, a very small basin and they were right up at the, do they call the, um, the head of the basin, like where it kind of meets the mountain, right? Uh-huh. Not like the, the mouth of the basin is like at the bottom where it kind of opens up. Well, this, this, these deer were side hilling and they go up into the head of that basin and they bed down in these, this little quakey thicket. That's probably, you know, maybe five acres, if that, maybe, maybe three acres of quakies right at the bottom, you know, where all these steep hillsides come down and they're in there. And there was two shooters in the group. And I was like, Oh my gosh. I was like, they're in there. They can't see in. Are they, they can't see out. I can't see in, but I can get to where I think these deer are going to come out and feed to. Right. So I did a big loop around, get down there and I get down, you know, it takes me a couple hours to get down where I need to be, or at least where I think I need to be. And I get down there and, uh, I mean, I wasn't down there 20 minutes and all of a sudden I see a deer, one of the bucks like bound out of there. And I'm like, the wind was good, but then I got so low in that basin down in the, down in the V and it was just swirling like heck down there. And they caught me immediately. I mean, <laughs> immediately. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I just blew it. And they, and they go, they run off, they go up into this big, huge swath of quakies. It's like, you know, I thought they're out of my life forever. Well, I spent the next two days trying to turn that buck up because you see a buck like that, at least I do. I'm just like, okay, that's the one I want. Right. And... I am on my last day. I have to head to the airport at noon and I'm up at the, the glassing point, you know, before first light and it's cracking light. And my buddy says, I see the big one. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So we look and he's, he's on that same side hill, but he's, you know, probably about seven, 800 yards away. And he's like on this side hill of, uh, like mahogany's and, and junipers and stuff. Uh-huh. And it's a really steep hillside. And he goes, he, he goes, I'll be honest, Andy. He goes, I don't have the confidence to get in there on that deer because it was like, you know how those juniper and mahogany side, those, those, those big swaths of them are, it's like, everything looks the same in there. Right. You get in there and it's like, all you see is like these big trees everywhere and everything looks the same. And if you got a deer bedded in the middle of it with no structure to like navigate to, it's like really hard. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. So I was like, okay, let's do this. Cause I, I had talked to, uh, um, Kip. Is that his name? Oh yeah. 
I know Kevin. I can't. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I can't remember his last name, but I talked to him and he was telling me about him, how him and his partner, I think his partner is Matt Bateman, but I think, uh, oh, Fowler, Kip Fowler. Kip Fowler, yep. Thank you. Yep, he was telling I've, me. I've actually had how, him on the show before years ago. Yeah, what a what an awesome guy. What a yeah. nice guy. And he, he told me, you know, he's like, me and Matt, if at all possible, we like to, I like, we like to have one guy going for the stock and one guy to set up on the escape route. Yeah. You know, if we don't need a guy coordinating, so it was our last day. I was like, let's do this. I was like, I'll go in for the stalk. And I was like, you set up here. And, um, you know, if I, if I bump that deer out, hopefully he'll come your way. Well, long story short, we have to do this big hike around the rim, mm-hmm. you know, times of the, of the essence, like we got to go catch a flight. <laughs> and, uh, I start, you know, kind of hiking down this hillside and it's just dead quiet. Wind is perfect. Everything's perfect. But as you're in the sea of like mahoganies, it's like, where is this thing? But I kind of had an idea. I put a little pin on Onyx. I was like, I think he's about here. And I start getting in there close and I keep checking the line distance. It's like, okay, this says I'm a hundred yards, you know, within a hundred yards of them. So I'm tiptoeing in, check it again. It says I'm within 60 yards of this deer. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I can't, can't see anything. You can see 25 yards, you know? Right. And then I check it one more time, you know, after a, f- a few more yards and it says I'm like 37 yards from this deer. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I can't see it. Like, where is it? Right. So I take a few more steps and, uh, I get to, I get to the spot and I kind of lift my eyes up and I see just the biggest stupid looking rack that I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) And he has no clue that I'm there. And I'm like, Oh my God, he's right there. And I range and he's 27 yards and he's bedded down, he's bedded down under this mahogany and he's got this, he's got a, I'm sitting kind of his level and he's got another bush like covering his vitals. And just made a, a, this a terrible mistake. Um, I knew I needed to gain some elevation. I need to get up like two steps. And I knew like I was already in his peripheral. So I was like, when I move, he's going to see me. Right. You know, like it's, it's now or never. Like I can't sit on this deer all day because we got to catch a flight. Right. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to move as slowly as possible and take, get two steps higher. And then I'm going to come to full draw. And then I'm going to try to shoot him bedded or if he stands, you know, often mule deer will give you that, you know, a few seconds. And what I should have did was come to full draw and, and take the two steps. Yep. yep. Oh, that's you exactly know. what I was thinking in my head. I'm like, well, you just, that's right. And, then, and, and, <laughs> and just me being, uh, you know, not having the experience. It was, it was a very, it was a very, very steep hillside. Like I had to use trekking poles to kind of get down it without sliding. So it was, it wasn't the easiest step up. Right. And I think that's part of the reason I was like doing that at full draw. Like I'll probably kill myself. Yeah. What's, um, what's a little death when you try to kill something? Exactly. <laughs> I should have done it. I should have done it and he, and he would have been mine. But what I did was I took a step and I was halfway through my first step and he jerks his head over and looks. And he's all 30 inches wide. Oh, and I'm like, oh, crap. And he's bedded down still. And I was like, all right, I got to get up and come to full draw. So I got up, came to full draw. In that short span, he stands broadside. He's looking at me. And I'm burying the pin. And I shoot with like a little bit of a kind of a back tension pull through method. Uh-huh. And I got the pin buried. And I'm just pull, pull, pull. And before the, sh- the shot breaks, he takes off. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like just punch the trigger, idiot. Yeah, that's exactly like, what I was going to say. I'm, seriously. I'm, I'm a 
trigger puncher for a reason. <laughs> yeah, like just punch the trigger. What an idiot. And uh, anyway, so he he takes off, does kind of take off in the same direction as my buddy. I was like, oh god, please let Matt get a crack. And uh, he didn't. He was he was kind of burned out of there quick, a little too far out of range. And that was the end of the hunt, you know. So, um, but I guess like all that was to say, like you know that part of of the country that I was in. That's not a spot that I would expect to be able to go to necessarily on a four day hunt and, and be successful. Like I put myself in areas that have decent number of deer and decent number of good bucks. And, and I think that ups my odds as, as being a little more efficient. Now, if I was going to set my sight to 170 inch whitetails everywhere I hunted and my efficiency yeah. goes way down. So it's all relative. Right. But I have killed some nice deer. I've killed a lot of bucks, um, you know, a lot of good bucks. And I've been fortunate and, uh, you know, have been able to do a lot of that on a short, tight schedule. So. No, nah, that's awesome. Yes, that's man. about it, man. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I um, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your knowledge with us. I hope that guys were able to kind of pick apart from, um, you know, the things that you were saying, the important information to help them become more efficient i i want there was a lot of i didn't want to i didn't want to interrupt you because there was a lot of times <laughs> i wanted to ask questions to help clarify it <laughs> but yeah. i felt like i was going to interrupt your flow and you weren't uh and you weren't going to get your thought process out so i didn't so i'm hoping that guys kind of came up with you know their own questions and then as you were explaining things they were able to uh to get that information but i, sure. I think so i did yeah but, well yeah I can, but i, I can understand a it a little differently so. so no it's not that you're along <laughs> with it at all i just you know i i just it's uh it's usually usually i have to speak a whole lot on these things you know <laughs> so, sure. To, sure to keep the conversation going you were you're you're you did my job for me i was happy for it but uh well if anyone uh if anyone wants any clarification or they, they got a question i mean you, they can reach out. There's no problem. So yeah. So where where can our listeners find out about you? Uh, follow you. Yeah, I I don't really put out a whole lot of content, but I do have an Instagram page where I kind of you know just share some of my hunting stuff on there, and that's uh, bow hunting dad, b o w h u n t i n dad. So if you just search Andy May on there, I, I think they'll probably find it too. So yeah, it pops up for sure. Yep. Well, awesome, man. So, Thank you for coming on and uh, spending some time with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate it too, John. It was fun. All right. Take it easy. Hey, guys. Thanks for checking out the show. Really appreciate you. Keep those reviews and those comments coming. Helps us keep this free. Do me a favor. Go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%, all one word. And check out Howl for Wildlife. Thank you very much. And we'll catch you on the next show.